Hosea chapter 1. These are God's words. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of the Blyam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. You may be seated. I had a, one, of my most, one of my fondest childhood memories was going to Six Flags over Texas uh, with my family and my father, who was a big roller coaster enthusiast, um, and got me on roller coasters as, I mean, probably four or five years old. I can't remember. Um, who knows? It might have been illegal. We don't know. Um, <laughs> but I was on them early. And, um, and by then, I had, grew, I had grown up a good bit, and, and he was older, and, and so it was, you know, it was um, a good roller coaster season. He, he always enjoyed it, and, and we were uh, primed and prepped to get on a new roller coaster at the time called the Texas Giant, and many of you may know of this roller coaster, uh, one of the best wooden roller coasters in the country. And we were kind of eyeballing it, sizing it up, and as we were making our way to it, um, we said, man, you know, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. It doesn't look, look like this that big of a deal. Um, and it didn't. And so we jumped on it, and my father, you know, was enthusiastic like he always is, and we were, you know, going up the hill, and you know, when you're going up the hill, you can hear the cranking, so we're going up the hill, and he has his hands up, and I got my hands up, and we're excited about it, and we're screaming, whoa, you know, like you do when you're crazy. Um, and so we're screaming as we're going up the hill, and my father's screaming, and I'm screaming, woo, and then as we get to the top of the hill, I'm still screaming, woo, but my father's not screaming anymore. He stopped screaming. And we got to the top of the hill, 
And then we went down the hill, and I didn't hear anything else. And I looked over just to make sure he was still alive, and he was just, just holding, the, holding the seat. And we zoomed and zigged and zagged and shook and head bops from left to right and, and all of that. And then we got off the roller coaster. And when we got off the roller coaster, my father said, I think my roller coaster days are over, son. It appeared very minor from the outside. And then we got in on the inside and it appeared it was very major. A major roller coaster. We're about to study a lot of books that appear minor from the outside, but are going to be tremendously major for us over the course of the next couple of months, several months, actually. They're, in fact, called Minor Prophets. It's a collection of 12 works that are known to us as Minor Prophets, but this designation, this title for these books, um, actually only goes back somewhere around the 4th century where St. Augustine, is believed, labeled them as such because of the length of the books. We got larger prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, and then you got minor prophets. Not because they're minor, but because their length is shorter. And so many folks from the Jewish tradition actually don't call these books minor prophets. Neither do they treat them as 12 separate books. They actually treat them as one single book, and they call it the Book of the Twelve. So let us be up front right now as we think about the next several months. And we'll take, start, we'll take pauses here and there along the way to preach other sermon series, but we're going to keep coming back to these prophets. But let's be very upfront now and say that they are minor only in length, but they are not minor in terms of importance. We have much to learn from these men, and we plan on doing that over the next several months, learning from them. We'll learn about the role that righteousness and biblical justice plays in right worship and right confession. Uh, we'll learn about the unknown dangers that lurk around us when we experience a little too much ease and a little too much comfort. We'll also learn about the unknown blessings that can be found when we experience deep pain and deep loss. We'll learn about hypocrisy, which we're all fairly acquainted with. We'll learn about depending too much on man rather than God. We'll learn about idolatry and spiritual adultery. But we'll also learn about in the midst of that idolatry and adultery, God's relentless mercy towards us and his love for us despite our routine and consistent unfaithfulness towards him, which leads us to the first book, Hosea. Hosea is this masterful poetic book that captures the writings of this man whose name literally means salvation. And it captures the writings of this man as he seeks to proclaim with words and literally with his life God's holy and righteous displeasure with Israel and God's patient and merciful desire for Israel. We constantly witness through Hosea's words and life that God is fed up with Israel and yet patient with them, not desiring the end of their relationship, but rather their restoration. Hosea is written in a time where Israel is experiencing great prosperity, and out of that prosperity has come a great straying away from God and a chasing after other idols. So God calls Hosea to a very unusual task. 
he calls him to wed an unfaithful woman. A woman who not only enters the marriage in sexual promiscuity, but continues in such promiscuity throughout the marriage. And God does this in order to give Hosea, Israel, and everyone in history that will follow behind them an understanding of the pain that we cause him in our infidelity. In fact, the following has been said about the book of Hosea. Hosea reads more like a love letter than systematic theology, more like a peek into God's personal diary than a sermon, more like an exploration of God's heart than a journey through his mind. If the Gospels explore the meaning of God becoming human, then Hosea describes what happens when humans are allowed to see what it means to be God, end quote. It is well known that very few events in our lives cause more emotional pain to us than infidelity. And it's for this reason, because human beings long for and need connection. And, 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 And because of that need for connection and that longing for connection and love, infidelity tramples on that need in ways that few other acts can do. In fact, there's one author that highlights that when humans receive threats to their important relationships, the brain responds in such a way that it, that, that in, in the same way, rather, that it would respond to a physical wound. The emotional wound of infidelity, for example, hits us the same way, at least in the brain, that a physical wound would hit us. One, phys- or one professional therapist puts it this way. She says that, When I'm dealing with my clients and one of them has committed infidelity, I I like to remind my clients that that their having committed infidelity should be thought about and seen through the same type of pain that if they were to literally run over their spouse in their car. Because the length of time that it takes to physically heal from such a horrible accident is probably similar to the length of time it will take to emotionally heal from infidelity. God wants us to feel that pain as we are navigating through this book. So by calling Hosea to marry a woman that violates her covenant with him by chasing other men, it's clear that God wants us to feel the weight of chasing other gods. He wants us to feel the weight of unfaithfulness. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, The word of the Lord, and sorry, let's pause and say this. We will make grand sweeping kind of flyover sermons over the next several months. So we're about to span through three chapters in about 35 minutes, all right? And we're going to do a lot of that over the course of the next several months as we navigate through the minor prophets or the twelve. But verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take your, to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. 
Before we dive too deeply into that, I think it's important to mention that right here, there is some debate as to whether this call to marry this woman is a metaphor or if this call to marry this woman is some sort of vision that Hosea is having. But I personally don't see anything that lends strong support to either of those ideas. Instead, what I do see is God calling Hosea to act out his prophetic words in a very dramatic fashion to Israel. And by the way, this isn't the first time that God has done this. You look back at Isaiah, for example, he calls Isaiah to walk naked for three years. It's a little extreme, at least in our opinion. He calls Ezekiel to bake bread over human waste. It's a little extreme, at least in our opinion. And these prophetic acts, however, are known as sign acts. They play out like dramas intended to deepen the prophetic meaning and paint unforgettable pictures for the words that God is speaking through his prophets. So this appears to be a sign act that is intended to show Israel a picture of their infidelity and a picture of God's faithfulness. This is not intended to be replicated any more than Isaiah's three-year nakedness is intended to be replicated and duplicated. Or Ezekiel's human waste oven bread is intended to be duplicated or replicated. Exodus chapter 20, that calls us not to commit adultery. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that calls us to not commit adultery, are still intended to be used as our standard. But why is this particular act considered to be a sign act, why is this particular act being called for by God? He tells us, very first couple of verses, the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The masses who claim to know God, who claim to represent God, in the midst of all of their prosperity, in the midst of all of their plenty, have turned their backs completely on God. And God desires for them to hear about it and to see it. To visually see it. The sin amongst God's people is so significant that God further paints the picture by showing Israel offspring out of this sin. God demonstrates this in the language that he gives the children even in this chapter. And in the names that he gives the children. First, he tells Hosea that his children are connected to his wife's promiscuity and unfaithfulness, which is quite a statement. He calls them children out of whoredom, children of whoredom. Basically saying the watching world will always debate who the children actually belong to. They will always debate who is actually these children's father, which is parallel to Israel. As they go around claiming the one true God is their God while giving themselves to other idols, people will look and say, eh, I don't know. Who is really their God? But he starts with this one child named Jezreel. Jezreel represents God's judgment. Verse 3, it says, So he went and took Gomer, 
the daughter of Debalaam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. The first son's name, Jezreel, is intended to point us back to God's impending coming judgment of Israel. We know this because of a very familiar story that Israel probably would have been aware of that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter, oh, 2 Kings rather, chapter 10. In that story in 2 Kings chapter 10, King Jehu um, conspires to kill the many sons of Ahab who threaten his throne. Seventy sons in all. All of them are beheaded and their heads are dumped in baskets and sent to the city of Jezreel. And although Jehu's reign was not in play in this moment in Israel's history, the kingdoms that succeeded him were growing not just in their wealth and in their plenty and in their prosperity, but also growing in their idolatry. So Hosea's first son was a warning that God's judgment on Israel was fastly approaching for their waywardness in the same way that it was once approaching in Jezreel for the 70 sons. She conceived again, verse 6 says, and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will not save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Let me say this before we get too far into these names. None of these names were intended to express Hosea's feelings for his children. What they were intended to be were little sermons being preached through Israel. Every time someone called Jezreel's name, it was reminding Israel that judgment was coming. Every time someone called his daughter's name, no mercy, Israel was reminded that they had completely and totally trampled on God's mercy towards them to the point that God had lost patience with them and wanted them to know it. Here's what one theologian says about this particular name. The little girl was the text of Hosea's sermon. The people heard that terrible name and no doubt whispered to one another, Hosea's wife is unfaithful. He must doubt that this child is his. He has rejected this poor thing. And Hosea could respond something like, do you trouble yourself over Luruhema? I tell you, you are Loruhema. Yahweh, Yahweh has turned his back on you. Loruhema is the daughter's name for no mercy. And so the people that might be gossiping or that might be whispering, he must not like his daughter. He must say that there's no more mercy for his daughter and his family. To that, Hosea could respond, no, God is saying there is no mercy for you because you have rejected him. Almost like the prophet Nathan to David as he's telling David the story and then he responds to David, you are the man. 
Israel had rejected God's mercy, and so he had grown tired of extending that mercy. On the flip side, God says of Judah in verse 7, I will extend mercy to them. Why does he extend mercy to Judah? Because they are not turning away from God. What's interesting about verse 7 is Hosea explicitly says that Judah's salvation will come by the Lord. Did you see that in verse 7? It will come by the Lord. It will not come by bow. It will not come by sword. It will not come by war, by horses, or by horsemen. This is a very important line because over and over and over again, we see Israel relying on the bow and the sword and the war and the horses and the horsemen. They're relying on their political affiliations and their political alliances to protect them. They've departed from God in their morality, and they've departed from God in their sense of security. They trusted in their political savvy and in their alliances more than they trusted in their God. And fam, the temptation for us is to do the same thing. The temptation is just as strong today as it was in Hosea's day. To trust in the bow, to trust in the sword, to trust in the horsemen, to trust in the horses, to trust in the war, rather than to trust in the God. May we pray in this hour for the Lord to have mercy on us and keep our eyes fixed on him and not on those who openly promise or secretly think that they can take his place in taking care of us. And then there's a third child, verse 8 and 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. This child's name in the Hebrew is Lo Am I. Lo Am I. And this child represents God's, God's ownership. So you have a child that represents God's judgment. You have a child that represents God's mercy or the lack thereof. And then you have a child that represents God's ownership or God's covenant or the lack thereof. And this may be the most alarming name out of all the names given. Because the first name points to the loss of God's covering and an earning of his judgment. And the second name points to the loss of God's mercy. But the third name points to the loss of God's covenant. Over and over through Scripture, we see Israel known as God's covenant people. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 24, and you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Over and over again, we hear this language of we are your people, you are our God. That is the covenant that we have with God. However, Israel has departed from God, and in so doing, they have left behind his protection, his covering, his mercy, and his covenant. And these children are walking sermons of that, walking indictments of that against Israel. Every time one of these children are called by name, it serves as a reminder of how far they have strayed from God. And every time Gomer, Hosea's wife, strays, it is a reminder of Israel straying despite God's relentless, steadfast faithfulness to her. God says, since you departed from me, 
he is literally saying in verse 9, I am not I am to you. Let's look deeper into the nature of this unfaithfulness in chapter 2. Hosea turns from the children to the particular betrayal that's found in their mother. He begins first by pleading with the children to address the sin of their mother. Verse 2, plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. That is such hard and difficult language to navigate through. But what we, what we see here is God pleading with the children to try and get your mother to stop this treachery, to stop this cycle of betrayal. Because if she does it, I'm going to remove my provision from her. I'm going to remove my care of her. And not only will it impact her, but it will impact the children as well. Basically, Israel's betrayal is going to end badly because those who represent Israel and everyone tied to Israel will be facing national rejection. You see, more often than we care to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, our sin has an effect not just on us individually, but, a, but, on, but on everyone around us that we provide leadership and protection and provision for. We have all watched churches be brought to dust because of the idolatry within the leadership. We've all watched families collectively be demolished because of the selfish act of a parent or multiple parents. Israel's national betrayal is going to have an impact all the way down to the lowest levels in the land. This is why he pleads with them to plead with their mother. In verse 5, he says, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge, her, hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them, and she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. <laughs> Part of the indictment here is that the mother has betrayed her husband, not just sexually, but also in where she has placed her trust for provision. She turned to other lovers because she thought the only way she could get was uh, to get what she needed was through those other lovers. All along not realizing that it was the first husband who actually was making the provision for her all along. So the husband says here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to completely cut her off 
from my provision, and I'm going to completely cut her off from everyone else so that she will begin to look back to me because she has no other place to turn. All the goods, all the food, all the provision I'm pulling off the table. Why? Because she thinks other people are providing it. So I'm going to pull it all off. Now, this is what's tragic. Look at verse 7 again. Then she will say, I will go and return to my husband, for it was better for me then than now. Even in cutting her off, she still doesn't realize where all the provision in the now came from. It appears that even in this moment, she doesn't understand that the husband has been present the whole time providing the provision. Even when she was completely unfaithful, he was still present and providing. But in order to open her eyes to the provision that he's supplying her, he's going to completely cut her off from all provision. Verse 9, it says, Therefore I take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth and her feast and her new moons and her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she, she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. Did you hear that? These are my wages which my lovers have given me, not my first husband. I will make a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of the days of the bells, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with a ring, with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. You see, instead of giving Israel provision for her continuous idolatry, God is going to take away all the provision from her. I hope you see how relevant this is for us right now. How many times have you forsaken God in a pursuit to chase provision that you thought was coming from other places? How many times have you skipped out consistently and without excuse on worship? for work, because you believe working longer and harder is going to give you more money and success when it is God who is providing for you, because he is the only source for true provision. How many times have you skipped out consistently and without excuse on prayer in exchange for social media and TV and gaming because you believe that it's there that you'll find true peace, true rest, true leisure, when in reality it is God who declares that he is the Lord of rest and it is God that declares, that he declares himself to be our peace. He is the only source for true peace and the only source for true rest. We tell ourselves that we're getting what we need from all these other places, all these other lovers, all these other idols that cannot truly provide for us and have never provided for us. So every once in a while in an act of love and in an act of devotion to us, 
God will remove the provision. He'll remove the peace. He'll remove the rest in an effort to redirect our attention back to him. Are you in the middle of one of those moments? Maybe you have no peace. Maybe you have no rest. Maybe you don't even have any provision. But you keep looking everywhere else to find it. You keep looking to those same lovers, those same idols, sex, money, power. Social media, entertainment, sports. Could it be that the true lover of your soul is hedging you in in order that you may see that it is all in and through him that you have and you receive what you need. So here's what's absolutely amazing about our God. All of that that we just read through. And yet God has endless reservoirs of mercy for us. Though we are truly like Gomer in that we play the harlot over and over and over again with our God and we chase other lovers, we commit spiritual adultery all the time, running over and over and over again back to these other idols that are not providing anything for us. They are not waking us up in the morning. They are not putting food on our table. They are not supplying clothes on our back. They are not tending to our children. We keep telling ourselves over and over and over again that they are the ones who will provide for us, constantly straying away from God's faithfulness to others who can never compare with his love and his protection and his provision. But despite that consistent demonstration of unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. And you see it all throughout this book. For example, you see it at the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 10 and 11. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Yet, yet, though there's a child named Jezreel, who is a child that is, that is proclaiming judgment to Israel, though there is a child named No Mercy, who is proclaiming that Israel has departed from me. Though there is a child who, who, whose name is, is not only no mercy, but there is a child basically whose name is no covenant. Not my people. Though all of these children are present, and though there is a wife who is continuously unfaithful, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured, cannot be numbered, and in the place where it is said, was said to them, you are not my people. Listen, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Notice the end of God's judgments. Yes, judgment is coming, but not to abolish you. Judgment is coming to heal you. Judgment is coming, yes, but not to push you farther away. Judgment is coming to draw you closer to me, to hedge you in. 
Chapter 1 starts with frustration, but it ends in renewal through mercy and through forgiveness. The present, yes, it's bad, it's coming, it's treacherous, it's ugly, it's adulterous, you, all that you've done. It's deceitful, all that you've done. However, your future is great because your God is. Because he is faithful in your treachery. He is loving in your deceit. He is covenantal in your adultery. You see it again at the end of chapter 2. Verse 14, chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. He talks about hedging her in. Talks about where there's no other place to turn. There's no other place to go. She's sitting back saying, man, I had it better when I was with my first husband. Um, because, you know, I mean, you know, before all this stuff happened, you know, all my other lovers were giving me so many things. But now all those things are gone and I had it better with my first She doesn't even know that all these things have been present only because of her first husband. And yet, here's that first husband saying in verse 14, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baals from your mouth, from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lay down, lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. In other words, I will make you mine again. Though you have departed from me, I am coming for you. I am relentlessly pursuing you. While you are out there skipping out on all the, all the things that, 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 that point your heart back to Jesus, Jesus is still coming for you. While you are chasing other loves, while you are chasing other idols, Jesus is still coming for you. That's the covenant that he has made with us as his people. That even when we are faithless, God remains faithful to us and continues to go after us. Listen, listen to what he says in verse 22 of chapter 2. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Here's the faithfulness of God at work. That though we are sinners, and though we are unfaithful, and though we deserve to be reminded of that, in the form of Gomer's children's names. Though we deserve to be reminded of that as the children go around and every time their name is called, we, we deserve to be reminded that God's judgment is coming. And though the children go around, we deserve to be reminded that there is no mercy for you. And as the children go around, we deserve to be reminded that you are not my people, you are not my people, you are not my people. 
Though we are sinners and though we are unfaithful and though we deserve to be reminded of that consistently in the form of Gomer's, Gomer's children's names, because God is faithful and because he strips us down to draw us to himself and not to push us permanently away, God is going to do such amazing restorative things to us that he is going to restore the children's names as well. They will no longer preach judgment to us. When you hear Gomer's child's name, judgment, Jezreel, you'll be reminded of the judgment that was averted because of God's faithfulness. When you hear the child's name, no mercy, you'll be reminded of how much abundant mercy has been shed on you despite your unfaithfulness. When you hear the child's name, not my people, you'll be reminded that you deserve to not be God's people, but because of God's faithfulness to you, you have been made his people. Every time you hear the child's name now, you'll be, you'll be reminded of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And how will he do that? Let's close out reading chapter 3 together. Five verses. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic, lethic or lethic, rather, of barley. And he said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household goods, or gods, rather. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This last portion here is a, is a first-person view at the, at the hurt and the pain of unfaithfulness. The unfaithfulness of this, this woman, this bride, has placed her in slavery and now the faithful husband has come to redeem her, has come to pay for her, to win back her freedom and to bring her back into right fellowship. And God says, that's you, Israel. Where do, you see that, where do you see that ransom ultimately being paid? It's paid in Christ. This is a shadow. This is a foreshadowing of what's to come. When Christ comes to earth through the virgin, lives the perfect, faithful life, spiritual fidelity, constantly faithful to the Father, all the way to the cross. On the cross, he is hung. And he takes all the brutality of sin upon his own shoulder, all of the pain and the burden of sin. 
upon his own back and purchases the unfaithful bride, purchases the gomers, purchases you, purchases me in order that we might be brought in right fellowship with him. In order that we might be not only guests, but actual honored guests and participants in the great marriage feast that is to come. When we were faithless, God was faithful and purchased us. And you'll see this throughout Hosea, this push and this pull of unfaithful people and a faithful God. May we be reminded of that faithful God. And may that faithful God, may that reminder lead us to thanksgiving for that faithful God and a pursuit by his spirit to live a more faithful life to him. Let's pray.